So I don't know about for you, but for me, today feels to have been one of those days that lasted a very long time. So it actually feels to me like about a week ago that we were practicing with compassion and self-compassion, when in fact it was just this morning. And likewise, it feels like maybe a couple of days ago that Beth led us in that delicious exploration of the guideline of attune to emergence, when in fact it was just this afternoon. And then we got the news about Donna having to leave the retreat to care for her sister. And right there, attuned to emergence and compassion come together in the immediacy of receiving that painful and unexpected news. And there's the heart's natural response of kindness, care, compassion. And the reminder, this is why we practice. This is why we practice. So we can meet life's inevitable ups and downs, sudden shifts and shocks, without falling into reactivity. Which doesn't mean that we're totally unaffected, but we are able to hold our natural human reactions with wisdom and compassion so they don't cause harm to ourselves or to others. And what makes that skillful responsiveness possible is insight. And again, insight defined as deeper and deeper levels of clear seeing into anicca, dukkha, anatta, impermanence and satisfactoriness, not self. So tonight, that's what I'd like to talk about, the conditions that help support clear seeing or insight to arise. Because we're at a particular point in the arc of this retreat. For five days now, we've been building a strong foundation of sati and samadhi, mindfulness and stability of mind, in both our individual and our relational practice. And based on what you've been sharing in the small group practice meetings and in the larger groups, it seems that these two practices are working together very powerfully to offer you some intense benefits. So this evening I'd like to give an overview of an important list of the Buddha's teachings, the list of the seven refined and skillful mental qualities known as the seven factors of awakening or the seven factors of enlightenment. And I give you the list of the seven awakening factors now because perhaps for some of you this might be new information. Has anybody never heard of this list before? Just briefly raise your hand. Check the other lot. Okay, seems like everybody's at least heard of them. So just as a quick reminder, and when you hear this list, you'll realize that at least on some level, these are all qualities that you've already been developing to some extent. So these are the seven. Mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, Samadhi and equanimity. 
once more. Mindfulness. Investigation. Energy. Joy. Tranquility. Samadhi. And equanimity. And I'll come back to each of them in just a bit more detail later on. But just want to say first the purpose on this path. These seven factors are called awakening factors or enlightenment factors because when all seven of them are strong and in balance, they provide the optimum conditions for deep insight to arise. The kind of insights that lead to awakening, also known as enlightenment, liberation, freedom, nibbana or nirvana. And although Nibbana is the whole goal, the purpose of both silent insight meditation practice and insight dialogue, there are a lot of misconceptions about what this term Nibbana actually means and even what insight or Vipassana refers to. So just to begin with the word insight, this is the usual translation of the Pali word Vipassana, which I think I mentioned literally means clear seeing, seeing distinctly or seeing separately. And as I mentioned last night, the insights that arise at first tend to be of a more personal or psychological nature. We start to understand our own conditioning, our personal histories, our psychological habit patterns, and to see through some of the ways that we tend to get caught in identification with that experience. Then as the practice progresses, we start to understand that everything we experience is impermanent, unsatisfactory, not self. And as these insights strengthen, we're able to let go into deeper and deeper experiences of freedom. No matter what level we're practicing insight, though, the purpose of it is to reduce suffering. So I appreciate the way that the English Dharma teacher, Rob Berbea, defines insight in his book, Seeing That Freeze. He defines it quite loosely as any realization, understanding, or way of seeing things that brings to any degree a decrease in dukkha. So it's very practical and simple. Has this insight brought to any degree a decrease in dukkha, suffering? So it reminds us that the point of all of this work that we're doing is to free the heart and mind from suffering. It's not about trying to have some kind of esoteric or far-out experience to impress our teachers or our friends or ourselves. And yet this is quite a common misperception of what insight practice is about. Especially when we hear terms like awakening, enlightenment, liberation, freedom, nibbana. These words can sound quite abstract or remote, distant, exotic. For some people even completely meaningless. For other people, there might be a vague idea of maybe getting there, in quotation marks, wherever there is, maybe at some point in the very far distant future. But right here and now, Nibbana doesn't sound very appealing or relevant. 
For some people, there might be a more definite sense that Nibbana is pointing to freedom from suffering. But to get there, it's going to be necessary to spend decades battling with the hindrances and the defilements and the afflictive energies before we have any hope of experiencing anything remotely like freedom. So especially in the beginning of practice, it's common for people to have an unconscious belief that Nibbana is something remote, mysterious, and not really applicable to their own lives. And that it might even be somehow presumptuous or arrogant to think that Nibbana is something we could ever experience. This was true for me uh, in the beginning of my own practice, until I learned that Uh, One of the suttas defines Nibbāna as the heart-mind that's completely free from greed, completely free from hatred, completely free from ignorance. In other words, free from the three core afflictive energies. And with this definition of Nibbāna, this is something that we can experience for ourselves, at least in moments, whenever the heart and mind are temporarily free of these afflictive states, perhaps just for nanoseconds, but as we learn to recognize those moments and to strengthen them, over time they can become more and more the default setting of the mind. So from this perspective, Nibbana is not a big bang experience where we achieve some kind of radical transformation into a state of permanent bliss. It's not a static state that we get, but a process that we're all going through. That's why I prefer the term awakening to the term enlightenment, because enlightenment is a noun, and it sounds like nibbana is a static state, whereas awakening is a verb, it's an action, a process, a process of letting go of afflictive mind states and strengthening the skillful qualities of heart-mind, such as the four Brahma-Viharas and the seven awakening factors. So there are a couple of quotes from the suttas that really highlight the importance of developing these awakening factors. Practitioners, the seven factors of awakening, when developed and cultivated, are noble and freeing. They lead the one who acts upon them to the complete destruction of suffering. So the practices we're doing here on retreat, they're noble and freeing, freeing us from suffering. So we could call that the carrot approach in the carrot and stick approach. It's enticing us forward. The other sutta takes more of the stick approach and it's a bit more earthy. So a certain practitioner approached the Buddha and said to him, Venerable Sir, it is said, an unwise dolt, an unwise dolt. In what way, Venerable Sir, is one called an unwise dolt? Now, dolt is an old-fashioned term for a stupid person, an idiot, a fool. And the Buddha says, It is because one has not developed and cultivated the seven factors of awakening that one is called an unwise dolt. So if we want to avoid being unwise dolts, we want to learn about how to cultivate these awakening factors. 
learn what kind of conditions help them to come up, recognize how they feel in the heart and mind when they are present, and understand how to help them strengthen and deepen once they have arisen. So even though we might not yet have a detailed understanding of what all these factors are, it can be helpful, especially when the mind is a little quieter, just to silently run through the list of these seven. And notice, are they present right now or not, to any extent? So even right now, as you're sitting here, and I run through this list again, just notice any responses that might come up. Perhaps for some, you might feel a sense of recognition, whereas for others, not so much, maybe a sense of absence, possibly confusion. That's fine. You just notice whatever the response is. So the first one, mindfulness. Is mindfulness present right now or not? And just asking the question, is it self-mindfulness? So the answer is yes. That's an easy victory. And then the second factor, the factor of investigation, is there interest and curiosity about my experience? And again, just asking the question, is investigation here or not, is investigation. So another easy win. And then the third factor, energy. So you might just notice, how is the energy right now? Too much? Not enough? Am I sinking into dullness or revved up into restlessness and worry? What does balanced energy feel like? And if there is some of that present, then we might naturally experience the fourth factor, which is joy, piti, sometimes translated as rapture or rapt interest. So can I find joy in this experience? Or if joy is a stretch, is there anything at all I can simply appreciate? about my experience right now. And then the fifth factor, tranquility. Is tranquility present or not? That quality of calm that I've been emphasizing in many of the guided meditations. Is there some degree of calm or not? And the sixth factor is samadhi, steadiness of mind non-distractability or unification of mind. Is the mind right now focused, stable, unwavering or not? Just to know. And then lastly, equanimity. Is there evenness of heart-mind, balance, acceptance? Is it possible for the mind to just stay steady? not pulled into wanting or pushed into not wanting. So did you notice maybe one, two, three or four? Let's just raise your hand with however many of those awakening factors you might have noticed. I see a four, 
You see a three, a five, another four, a five. It looks like quite a few fives. That's pretty encouraging. Thank you. Thank you for that show of hands. So that's a very brief overview of these seven factors. And when we run through the checklist, maybe one or two are present, maybe more, but the ones that are present feel quite weak. But even this is useful information because the first step in working with these is learning how to recognize them, to know how they feel in the body and the mind. And when these factors are all present and are perfectly in balance with each other, that's when we have the optimum condition for deep insight to arise. And it's said in the suttas that just as a river inclines and flows towards the ocean, so the awakening factors incline and flow towards freedom, awakening. And this analogy suggests that it's a natural process. There's a natural flow of development of these awakening factors. And at times, perhaps especially in silent retreats, we experience them as a kind of a positive chain reaction that sets up its own momentum. And the wholesome states just flow very naturally from one to the other to the other. However, we do need to make some effort to get that process started. And it's a little bit of a chicken and egg situation, but that's why mindfulness is the first of the seven factors. Because first we need to know what is going on in the mind, to know whether the seven awakening factors are present or not, and especially to be on the alert for the presence of the five hindrances. So I'm aware that on this retreat so far, I haven't given the classical five hindrances talk with the assumption that all of you will have heard at least one. It's pretty standard on insight retreats. So the five hindrances are different types of afflictive mental energy that obscure clear seeing. And I didn't want to go into them in detail because it's very easy to get bogged down in numbered lists within numbered lists within numbered lists. So just very quickly, because I think you all know them, Five hindrances are desire for sense pleasure, ill will or aversion, sloth and torpor, restlessness and worry, and skeptical doubt. So if the hindrances are present, sometimes just being able to name them helps their grip to loosen. And in fact, there's a reciprocal relationship between the five hindrances and the seven awakening factors if any of the hindrances are present, then by definition, the awakening factors will be absent. The opposite is also true. When the awakening factors are present, the hindrances will be absent. And mindfulness is the foundation that helps us to recognize. The clear comprehension aspect of sati helps us to discern the current state of mind. So the first awakening factor, mindfulness, has a very important role in helping us to stay connected with experience. And then the next factor is investigation, technically investigation of dhammas, phenomena. 
And with this factor, we're investigating our experience and interpreting it according to the teachings. So one aspect of this is knowing, again, all experiences are impermanent, unsatisfactory, not self. So one way of practicing with this factor is um, very simply knowing whether something is wholesome or unwholesome, whether it's leading to progress on the path or the opposite. So the three or four questions that I've shared with you a few times, what's happening in the body? What's happening in the heart-mind? And how am I relating to this experience? Or what's the attitude in the mind about it? That last question is what helps us to reveal the presence or absence of the hindrances. So when we ask, what's the attitude in the mind? We might notice if there's some kind of wanting or greed, or the opposite, some kind of not wanting or aversion, or perhaps dullness or restlessness or doubt. And if we recognize that the hindrances are present, then we make effort, effort to help them release. So effort is the next awakening factor, the energy, effort, or virya. And last night I mentioned the Buddha's own struggle to find balanced energy or effort in his practice and how he went from one extreme to the other before he found the middle way. And for all of us, when we're working with energy or effort, this is an ongoing exploration. Because what's appropriate in one sitting might be completely different the next. The amount of energy or effort you can bring up first thing in the morning might be quite different to right now. And in daily life too, we need to keep changing our energy or effort to suit the circumstances. And the aim is to have this energy be steady and stable, not the kind of all-or-nothing energy that so many of us tend to make in the beginning. And as we learn how to refine this energy to make it more steady and sustainable, it starts to develop an effortless quality. So in some traditions they talk about effortless effort. And at those times it feels almost like we're surfing a wave. There's just a natural momentum of the meditation practice that carries us. And we don't have to do much at all except keep paying attention or attuning to emergence as to bring in the insight dialogue guideline. And when we are in that stage or phase of effortless effort, it's pretty pleasant. And it arises, gives quite naturally, gives rise to the factor of joy or pity. As I said earlier, sometimes translated as rapture or rapt interest. And just to be clear, the kind of joy that's referred to here is not a physical sense pleasure kind of joy. It's a more refined mental quality of happiness. And so it's more sustainable than ordinary sense-based pleasure. For example, the pleasure of eating a bowl of ice cream. 
most of us can only eat one, maybe two bowls of ice cream before the joy wears off and we start to feel a bit sick. But when joy is present as an awakening factor, it can be sustained for hours, sometimes even days, without much effort. And then eventually joy steadies, stabilizes and settles into tranquility, which is the next awakening factor. And tranquility is a profound calmness and stillness of body and mind. It's a direct antidote to the hindrance of restlessness and worry. And because it's a pretty refined and subtle state, at first it can take a bit of getting used to. Most of us are just not used to deep calm. So sometimes it can seem as if not much is going on and we might feel a little bit spacey or unfocused. And I've noticed a few times when I've been putting together these talks on the hindrances, oh sorry, on the awakening factors, that I often forget about tranquility. I'm going through the list and it's like, oh, there's one missing. It's tranquility. Perhaps because it is so quiet and peaceful. And you might find something similar in your own practice if you do occasionally work through that checklist. Often there's one that's missing and if you look it's often the one that needs some strengthening. So again, that can be useful information. So tranquility is this quality of profound stillness and calm. And it leads very naturally into samadhi, the next awakening factor. So I mentioned at the start of this retreat that samadhi is often translated into English as concentration. But I try to avoid that term because it has overtones of a kind of a forced, uh, narrow, fixated attention. Whereas what samadhi is pointing to is more of a stable, undistracted, unscattered, unified quality of mind. Sometimes translated as absorption. In that the mind is very naturally absorbed fully into the meditation practice and it's not moving anywhere. And most of you, at least in moments, have had experience of the mind becoming more concentrated, more steady and stable. And what a relief that is. Because in daily life we're just constantly bombarded by sense contacts, sights and sounds and tastes and smells and physical sensations and thoughts thousands of times a second and we don't even recognize the impact of all that until we have an experience of its absence when the mind settles into samadhi so this awakening factor of samadhi can give the whole nervous system a rest a very deep rest that's experienced as profoundly refreshing And then from that experience of samadhi, the final awakening factor can arise, and that is equanimity. Equanimity being the mind that is perfectly balanced, deeply at ease, not clinging to anything in the world, as it says in the sutta. It's not clinging to anything, 
and it's not resisting anything. It's at rest, aware, poised. And it's a very refined state of mind. Even the subtle vibrations of energy and joy aren't there anymore. So this quality can be sustained for even longer than the previous ones. And I mentioned this quality last night because equanimity is also one of the four Brahmavihara. And so just a reminder that equanimity is not a state of disconnection. The mind that's resting in equanimity is fully aware of what's happening. It's alert and alive, but it's in a state of non-reactivity that allows the deepest insights to arise. So how are you doing? If you need to stand at this point, please feel free. That's a relatively brief overview of the awakening factors. And I'd like to speak a little bit more generally now about some of the challenges that can come up when we are experiencing these more wholesome qualities. Surprisingly enough, experiencing wholesome mental qualities can bring its own challenges. So after the mind has been secluded for some time and the hindrances gradually weaken, perhaps even disappear altogether, at first for some people this can be quite disconcerting because we've got so used to wrestling with sense desire and aversion and sloth and torpor and restlessness and worry and skeptical doubt. They're unpleasant, but at least they give us something to do. They keep us occupied. So when the hindrances start to be less predominant, it can feel like there's nothing happening or that we've lost our mindfulness because we can't really say what we're aware of anymore. And sometimes this is because the grosser mind states, the hindrances, the defilements have fallen away, but our mindfulness is not yet quite refined enough to notice their absence and to notice the more subtle mind states that come up in their place, such as the awakening factors and the Brahmaviharas. And for some people, at least at first, when we're relatively free of the hindrances, this can be an acquired taste. We start to realize that we've been unconsciously addicted to the dramas of practice, the highs and the lows. And we, some personality types are unconsciously searching for catharsis, for craving intensity, and perhaps even afraid of a more balanced and nuanced range of experiences. So when the practice does settle naturally into a more stable and a quieter phase, sometimes people try to get that familiar intensity back by pushing or forcing or striving in various ways. And again, because mainstream society conditioned us so much into being productive, we bring the same attitude to our practice and feel like we should be getting some kind of result. So it takes training to get used to a mind that's without greed, without aversion, without delusion. And it might be that those absence of those states doesn't last very long 
but they start to loosen some of what are sometimes referred to as our karmic knots, those very deeply conditioned patterns, deeply identified with stories that we've spent a lot of time and energy wrestling with. And at times, the loosening of those knots can feel more like unraveling or even falling apart. Our usual defense mechanisms and personality habits and self-protection strategies are starting to dissolve. And we might find ourselves on shaky ground. And I've noticed in my own practice at times that when there is an opening into a new kind of spaciousness, Sometimes there's an internal backlash in a way. And one symptom of this is suddenly the mind goes into overdrive and starts telling itself all kinds of stories and getting lost in full-blown fantasies and creating imaginary doomsday scenarios and anything at all to shift away from this more open way of being. So there can be uncomfortable phases of the practice. It's the phases of transition that can feel a little awkward, sort of like puberty when we're getting used to our newly adult bodies and hearts and minds. Or maybe a little more poetically, like the transition of a butterfly from a caterpillar to a butterfly. And when the butterfly first emerges from the cocoon, it needs to rest to allow the soft structures of its wings to harden before it can fly. And when we are in those phases of transition, at times accompanied by shakiness or groundlessness, the best thing we can do is offer ourselves immense patience and kindness and to whatever extent we can to trust that everything we're experiencing is a natural unfolding is a natural development of the practice. So early on in my own practice, I wasted huge amounts of time and energy struggling to try and get the unpleasant experiences to go away and the pleasant experiences to stay. And even though I knew intellectually that this wasn't the right approach, I still felt mystified and even mortified Each time those fleeting moments of ease and calm and peace dissolved into misery and I took it all very personally, assuming that I must have done something wrong whenever those skillful states disappeared. So it was a huge relief when I heard one of the IMS teachers, I think it was Michelle MacDonald, talk about what she referred to as cycles of purity and purification. And this is the understanding that there are natural rhythms in the way the practice unfolds and there's a causal relationship between these different phases. So the so-called purification stage is when we're navigating all those various challenging emotions and moods and mind states and we learn eventually how to meet these painful formations skillfully with kind curiosity, with openness and equanimity, and eventually they release. And then when they release, we find ourselves in the so-called purity stage. 
This is when the mind opens into calmness, to clarity, to equanimity, sometimes accompanied by a few moments of bliss. And then the natural tendency is to think, at last, finally, I've got it, this is great, I can cruise now for the rest of this retreat, or maybe the rest of my life. Looks like some of you may recognize that. So you probably also recognize what happens next. Sometimes in the very next sitting, perhaps a couple of hours later, maybe the next day, everything falls apart. We find ourselves caught in the well-known multiple hindrance attack. And perhaps with seemingly even more intensity than before. So we find ourselves back in the purification cycle. And we stay there until we've developed enough skill to let that level of painful mental states dissolve. And then we can move into the next purity cycle and so on. So there's a causal relationship between these phases. It's because of the calm and the clarity that the next level of stuff can come up into consciousness. And then when we've learned how to metabolize and navigate those particular challenges, they release, we experience ease, calm, peace. And then more subtle afflictive states might come on. And so there is a general movement towards less extreme, less intense, more and more refined levels of afflictive states. And the more often this happens, the clearer it becomes that these are just normal, natural phases of the practice. And so we learn to understand that this is unfolding exactly as it should. But if we try to fix or hold on to either of these cycles, we'll suffer. Just as with the swings of a pendulum, if we hold on, it takes us for a wild ride. But if we can make space and simply know, okay, now it's like this, now it's like this, now it's like this. Eventually those pendulum swings get a little bit less dramatic and we spend more time in the ease, the calm, the clarity, the equanimity. So a few years ago I read somewhere that in the Tibetan tradition the word that's used to refer to meditation in Tibetan literally means getting used to it. Getting used to it. And I like that because we can interpret that in various ways but I think it's very helpful in relation to those phases of the meditation practice when there might be a sense of being in new territory of some kind. So we can remember meditation is getting used to it. So all through this retreat, I've been emphasizing a balanced approach to effort, letting the continuity of mindfulness and the stability of mind do its work. So here, with the awakening factors, even though it's presented as a numbered list, it's not about trying to tick them off one by one mindfulness, yep, got it, okay, investigation, yep, got that. At this stage of the practice, our effort needs to be very refined. 
if we're approaching the awakening factors with the attitude of things we've got to do or get or have, that very striving gets in the way of their natural development. So the best thing we can do is keep getting ourselves out of the way, attuned to emergence, and trust that the practice is unfolding exactly as it should. So all of you here have been, at times, have touched into at least a few of these awakening factors, even just for a few moments at a time, even if they're not particularly strong or stable, or perhaps just little buds, as Bhikkhu likes to say, tiny buds. But these buds have the potential to open into flowers, which in turn have the potential to bear great fruit, which has the potential to grow strong trees. So I hope that this overview of the awakening factors might give some sense of possibility, some inspiration about where all of this practice is leading. And I'd like to close with just one more passage from the suttas that's attributed to the Buddha. And as you listen, you might like to imagine that the Buddha is speaking directly to you, because in a way he is. So see if you can just settle back and take in these words. He says, Abandon what is unskillful, practitioners. It is possible to abandon what is unskillful. If it were not possible, I would not say to you, abandon what is unskillful. But because it is possible, I say to you, abandon what is unskillful. If this abandoning of what is unskillful were conducive to harm and pain, I would not say to you, abandon what is unskillful. But because it is conducive to benefit and pleasure, I say to you, abandon what is unskillful. Develop what is skillful, practitioners. It is possible to develop what is skillful. If it were not possible, I would not say to you, develop what is skillful. But because it is possible, I say, develop what is skillful. And because this development of what is skillful is conducive to benefit and pleasure, I say to you, develop what is skillful. So may our efforts here on this retreat help us to develop what is conducive to benefit and pleasure so that we might experience the arising of the awakening factors and the deepest freedom of heart and mind, Nibbana. So thank you for your attention. Let's just take a moment of silence. Let the words dissolve.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.